morning, everybody. Welcome to Keys to Your Best Life. My name is Maggie Cavanaugh, your host, and I am here today with a friend, colleague, brother in Christ, Tyler Bowman. Tyler is an amazing young man who understands the importance of recovery. And so I just want to thank you, Tyler, for being on the show. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Maggie. I enjoy it every time I get to talk to you. I know we have been uh, in recovery circles together for quite a while, and I have had the honor of just watching him grow deeper and deeper in his passion and love for seeing people walk in wholeness. And, you know, we've been talking a lot because this is recovery month. I know you guys are probably like, do you know anybody besides ex addicts? I do. <laughs> but right. the majority of the people out there need to know that people do recovery. And Tyler is a perfect example of that. He is a business consultant. He is at uh, Tulip Hill in Murfreesboro, uh, Tennessee. It's a recovery place. Office is over what on Rutherford? Is that right? South Rutherford Boulevard. Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple houses right up the road. But for people outside of the area, they can still come to Tennessee to seek recovery at Tulip Hill, correct? Absolutely. Tulip Hill is a good place to just start over. We do a longer term continuum. So we're able to house people for up to 90 days and give them therapy. Wow, that is absolutely amazing because it's so important. You know, 30 days, in my opinion, is just enough to kind of 90 days is, is perfect to get them started on a new life. Well, I could tell you, you know, with my recovery, I went through multiple 30 day treatment programs. And essentially the one that worked was the one that was structured like Tulip Hill, which is why Ben Jones, our owner, um, you know, structured it similar to what worked for us. And then we implemented some other things. And it's been cool to watch. You, you know, you put people in this bubble for 30 days and then they're told to go back to life. And there's just all this anxiety. We just want to walk with them as we give them a little bit of freedom, slowly, a little bit at a time so that they don't have as much anxiety around getting back to life. So with that 90 days, then, so it's a, there's very much transition that takes place mm -hmm. to prepare them. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty structured. The first, you know, first 30, no cell phones. Um, you know, it's it's treated pretty much like a residential program. It's just that our housing separate. Um, then you're going to step down to phase two. You actually go to IOP three days a week, three hours a day, and we help you start looking for a job. If you want to go back to school, we can help you get into Middle Tennessee State right up the road or into junior college with Motlow or someone like that. Um, we originally started as a collegiate recovery. And what we want to do is get people to understand like getting sober is the first step, but what are you passionate about? And chances are just like me, no one really knows what they want to do with their life when they get sober because we don't know ourselves. So we just want to walk with them through that. And then, you know, once they get into phase three, you have to be working. If you're not yet you to volunteer here in town at uh, greenhouse ministries um, that urges some of our, some of our younger guys and girls to start working and getting paid for it. And then some are at, at places in their life where they're maybe been in retirement and they started drinking or had some issues where they just got bored. And so they just want to stay busy and they're okay with doing that. But, you know, we just, we want to show them that you can, A, you can have fun in sobriety, B, that you're never too far gone to turn your life around and to impact other people and to change your life. And you can have a future that's worth fighting for. 
Wow, I love that, Tyler, because some of the some of the reasons that people I, I personally feel like, and this is just my philosophy on it, is that people don't know their identity. And so they're searching yeah. for their identity. And then when they find themselves in a culture of um, people that use, it's like, oh, this must be who I am because they love, they accept me, right? And so if you truly know, the more you know about yourself, you know, like know thyself, you know, and the Bible tells us to allow the Lord to search our heart. and People, once they get a hold of who they're called to be and their passion, it does aid with their recovery. It does. And, um, you know, if anybody sits back and I get it all the time, they're like, well, this must help you stay sober. Actually, it's kind of the opposite. I have to be even more on top of my personal recovery because it's draining watching people fail. Yeah, um, You see it. That's just part of part of it. You know, it's a process. You don't just get sober the first time. Some people do, but it's rare. So when you have losses, it really weighs on you. And I think that you have to have to practice your self care, but you know, the bigger piece too, um, you know, we just, the main focus is to really get people to understand that, you know, the shame, the guilt, all that stuff you've been running from, it doesn't define you anymore. You just got to turn it around. Wow, that's very powerful. And I love what Tulip Hill is doing locally. And for those of you, um, the, the website is tulipHillRecovery.com. And we'll put that in the chat stream for those that are uh, watching this on the replay. So if you are putting this, watching this on a replay, hit hashtag replay. This is uh, going out to various platforms. Some people might be watching it live and some of y'all may be watching it later. If you are watching it later and you have questions, put it in the chat stream because we will go back and check those and comment on those. But, you know, Tyler, you know, it's so important. You're right. It is when you're working in a vein of helping people, whether it's counseling, whether it is ministry, whether it is um, recovery field, we do deal with a lot of heavy stuff. Yeah. You know, right now I'm on I'm on sabbatical with the exception of this. And and, you know, Tyler and I've been trying to do this for a month. So I need I'm like, to come join you. because I need a break. You know, I, I just need to go away for a week. Exactly. <laughs> it is. You know, I'm serious. People need to understand self-care is part of recovery. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that naturally what happens is is you can get complacent. You know, I think that recovery takes different forms. We were talking about this earlier on the phone. Um, you know, my recovery is different from someone else's. They may have got sober on a halfway house through AA, whereas right. I may have went through celebrate recovery. Now, AA was my my decision. That's the way I went. I did my 90 and 92 times over, uh, worked the 12 steps. And then somewhere along the line, you know, going into my third and fourth year, things started to shift and they shifted in the context that I knew that my meetings were my fallback plan, my security blanket, if things went wrong, I knew where to go. I still go to meetings every so often. And and I know that that, that frustrates some people, but, you know, especially the ones that are in the rooms quite often. But the, the thing is, you get you start acquiring things as you get sober responsibilities. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I have softball games. I have all this stuff. And sometimes it's just not possible to be there every single day. So what I tell people is that you know, you got to find what works for you. And all too often, as we discussed earlier, we put people inside of this box. And when you do that, it creates a lot of shame and guilt around not going to a meeting every single day. Like, I remember when I got sober, I would freak out. I'd be like, I didn't make my meeting today. Oh my God. I hope I don't like, I would think I was going to relapse as a result. But I had this great advice, Maggie, from a, a, a guy that 
was actually the father of my sponsor. He's been sober for 30 years through AA. He said, you know, you see all these big book thumpers saying meeting makers make it. And, you know, these guys are retired. They get to come in and they sit in meetings every day because they can do that. Right. Um, but what you don't see are the people that come into the rooms, they get what they need and they move on. So I guess to generalize it, like your recovery will shift as you go year after year after year. You will have things that were working in early recovery won't work anymore. And to grow and change, you're going to have to alter that. And people have to be flexible with that. Correct. And, and I think you're right. I think there is a great deal of shame. You know, I, I've mentioned before my my personal recovery many years ago looked different than the majority of people. And mm -hmm. so I am like, whatever works for you, whatever yep. you will do. You know, people say all the time, what recovery program, you know, should I go to? What rehab should I go to? And I'm like, the one that you will work. <laughs> the one that you that you, get, you really, and that's what I like about the integrative approach, the holistic, if you will, approach mm -hmm. that Pill takes, because people do, it's more than just getting sober. You yeah. have to really uh, discover what are your areas. And because through, you know, therapy and count, good counseling, you can find out, what are your triggers? And if you know your triggers, you can build your the recovery around that. Well, and we call that finding your why. Like, why, yeah. why do we want to escape? Why do we why do we use like for me? I'm a very cognitive person. So if I could understand what I've done to my body and the way that it it's going to recover, then I can know what to expect. Right. So when I went into detox that first day at Pahokee in Pahokee, Florida, in the cane fields of north florida in the middle of nowhere i literally get there and they tell me look there's alligators everywhere like this is actually a bad crime area big with drugs like if you go like we've had people disappear i believed them because the nearest walgreens was about 67 miles away um but but i remember that class maggie like the, it was great they used to uh they bribed you with cigarettes like which i don't know if that was legal back then it was <laughs> Like if you go to your group, you get a pack of 305 cigarettes, which anybody from Florida would know what those are. <laughs> they brush the cigarette off of the floor in the Marlboro factory and put them in a pack. But I would go into group and the guy said, you know, he explained the whole mid cortex and how it processes information. Like he did the railroad analogy and why we're impulsive after we get sober. So when I got clean, like I would stop for 10 seconds, process, think bounce it off of people which is why you have a sponsor and then something happens like it gets easier to your brain recovers and you start to process but when i have those triggers and stuff i can sit there and say hey this is what's going on just hang on it's going to get better that's so good that's so good because that's where a lot of people miss it is they don't stop and say wait a minute what is really going on here mm -hmm. you know the brain is so complex and it's a huge component in recovery you know they say that it takes 18 months for the brain to to really recover mm -hmm. uh, from you know especially heavy opiate usage and so forth your brain has to be reframed it has to be rewired i use the analogy of the woods we know if you're used to going to the woods and you you're like hitting that path we already we automatically go for the path of least resistance you know right. I'm going to go this way because there's a path and, you know, people have been this way and so forth. If you have done that path so many times, you know, it's automatic. But when you start to tear down the brush and break into an area that is new, 
like your recovery walk or any other behavior, you know, type of change, you're going to have to deal with some of that stuff. And it's going to be sticky in the beginning and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it because that will create neural pathways in your brain. You will start to go to wait. You know, I, I love the Bible says, and you guys, those of you that know me, you know, I'm passionate about the word of God. It says that broad is the way to destruction and narrow is the way. And so I try to always, Think of that analogy whenever, like, you know, mindsets tend to go south. And yeah. you know, if you, you have to think what you're thinking about. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, it's like the analogy of the double-minded man. Like, was the ultimate version of that and and a prodigal son. But, you know, that that's, I love that you brought the narrow pathways because I think that I'm the type of person that I feel a lot. Like I feel what other people feel. I'm an imp. What do you call it? A empath or whatever it's called. Like yeah. I can. If you're hurting, I'm hurting. So I had to learn how to disseminate the difference between sympathy and empathy because one would hurt me more than the other would serve a purpose. But you know, understanding those neuro pathways and that it's like this. It, the best way I heard it put was it's like the cart and buggy. Like you have those tracks in the old dirt road. So naturally when you're driving that car, it's going to want to fall into that, that, uh, did, right. So you're learning to reform. What's beautiful is giving these people hope knowing like, Hey, you can reform neuropathways. Your brain is the one part of the body that's always going to recover because it's plastic. So, you know, when people are like, I'm never going to get any better. I'm like, you can, you just got to want it bad enough. You know, the statement you just made, I've heard so many times. And whenever people make those statements, they reinforce themselves, you know, to believe that. You and are what you say, what you speak. Yes. Comes into existence, right? Yeah. Power of life and death is in the tongue. And and we do, you know, we, we are dealing with three voices all the time. We're dealing with the voice of God, the voice of the enemy, and then our own soulish stuff. You know, what we think, what we want, what we feel. And whatever you listen to the most is going to be your makeup. And you're going to find yourself in that place. And I know, you know, many years ago, some of you may not know this, but, you know, I, I, I used heavily. I was, I was an addict in my early years. I mean, eighth grade dropout you know, addiction tore my early life up. And then later on, I still continued on that destructive path, but took a different turn with it and became functional, if you will. Right. There's no such thing as, you know, I, I hate that term because there is no such thing as a functioning alcohol, alcoholic or, or addict in a sense, because they're still out of control. Uh, but with that being said, I literally had to make a lot of changes in my life of believing who God says I am rather than who I believed I was. I didn't know who I was. And I reinforced all those negative self-talks with things will never change. It's always going to be like this. And, you know, when we rehearse it automatically, you know that the enemy is going to come in and say, that's right. You're always going to be like this, you know? And so we have to break free from that and we have to find out who we are, why we were created. What is our purpose? What is our passion? And when we tap into that, things start to shift. Yeah. Well, and we talked about it earlier too, Maggie, like, and then the more you start to do that, and that's what I want people to understand, like getting sober is not easy. And what I tell people is that the end result is it puts you further ahead in life than most, because most people don't look at the things that people in recovery look at right. like defects, um, morals, things that 
you know, we really have to change and, and reconfigure in our life so that we don't feel sh shame, guilt and remorse, because whether we do dirt as an addict, when we get sober, we feel it and it comes up. I cried for two weeks straight when I went into treatment because I started seeing all those memories of everything that I'd done, all the wreckage that I caused. Right. So you just have to be kind to yourself and know that once you turn your life over and like for me, when I turned it over to God, it's, it's going to be a daily reprieve, but it's, it's a fun one. It's one where I get to watch people, um, change their life. I get to engage with people in good conversation. And what I notice too is when I'm trickling the wrong direction, I'm cutting myself off from people and opportunities. So I have to check that. And so I hope that people know that like you don't have to be perfect in your recovery. You're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to regress back to old behaviors uh, to a degree, but it's just being able to be honest with yourself and be great, grateful at the same time and know that like you're where you're at and that's okay. That's so good. That's so good. I believe that a dead end road is not a dead end road if it leads you to where you're going. Exactly. And so there's always a uh, you know, place for turnaround. So let's talk about your turnaround a little bit, if you will. And I know you've been very transparent. You know, I've actually been on a, a Powered Fuel Living TV show with you talking about this topic. And I know that you have spoken. Actually, you spoke for me whenever I did a workshop there in Merton. Yeah. And you have spoken repeatedly about your amazing testimony. And I believe what the scriptures say that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's why, you know, you see, you know, celebrate recovery and AA and NA and all of those, because when people get to the point where they're walking out a, a level of liberties um, and freedom in their walk of recovery, they turn around and they pay it forward and they encourage others. And so when, when people tell their story, it gives people permission to be real and yeah. to look in the mirror and go, is that me? Do I, I do that. You know, someone just recently told me I did that. You know what I'm saying? And I love that you brought out the fact that people in recovery are, listen, they're some of the emotionally healthiest people I know because they do look in the mirror and they do say, wait a minute, that's not pleasing to the Lord or that's not going to take me down the right path. And you mentioned something also very important about, you know, pulling back in isolation. You know, I believe it's the banana that gets pulled away from the bunch that gets yep. eaten. That banana gets eaten. You take it off that thing, it gets eaten. It's gone. Right? And so we have to remember that we recover in community and that, you know, God created us that way. So let's talk, Tyler, about your journey. Why don't you give them a snippet or uh, even the long version, you know, the, the PG-13, rated R, I don't care. Let's encourage some people with your testimony. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how short we want to make it, but I'll try to be to abbreviate it because I'm not sure, you know, at what point we're done here. Um, whenever you're done, when you feel it, okay. just be led. Um, I mean, I think I can remember my earliest, you know, addiction coming into play when I was probably about 13 or 14. I was a very, a fairly good kid. You know, I, I grew up, I had my mischievous side. Um, I could manipulate my parents pretty well. I think that that was the earliest indicator is when my parents went through their divorce, um, I found it really easy to try to manipulate the two, you know, and turn them against each other at times or to play one side to get what I wanted. And, you know, it's not something I'm proud of, you know, it's something I had to do work around. And it's something that carried into adulthood almost till I was 25 years old before I went to treatment. 
if I'm being honest with you, but you know, it, it morphed into tobacco and then eventually marijuana, pornography, then alcohol. And then before I knew it, I found opioids. Um, I hadn't done any substances up until I was 15 or 16 in that range. I was telling you, I went to, um, I went to a, a, a boarding school my freshman year and went on a ski trip with some people and didn't even, you know, they, I walked in the hotel room to hang out with them. They were all drinking, smoking, didn't even indulge then. You know, I, I was focused on baseball. Baseball is what I wanted to do with my life. That was my primary focus. I wanted to be a major league baseball player. And, you know, I'd really fought hard. I went from a boarding school where the kids were ragging on me because I was the better pitcher on the team, the better batter on the team. And they knew I was going to a 5A school. And they were like, you're going to fail. And I went there, got cut my sophomore year. And then my coach saw me pitching in the bullpen, called me back into his uh, room. He was a history teacher and asked me to come on board. And I fought. I fought my way all the way through JV, all the way to being the starting pitcher my senior year. Um, and, you know, was going to go to junior college and make a future, hopefully. I wasn't amazing, but I loved it. Right. So, I think the main thing that happened is I got distracted. Um, I had invested myself in people, places, and things. Uh, I came back home as a result of that. I dropped out of college, which kind of screwed up my eligibility. So I had a lot of shame. You know, you take away your identity and then you're left with this huge void. Like, what do I do now? So I started hanging out with old friends from high school that, you know, had their own struggles, never really went anywhere. And before I knew it, I was in that life, you know, fighting, uh, drugs, dealing, um, you know, it, a lot of dumb mistakes. And I don't have enough time in the day to get into all the crazy stories. But the end result was it eventually went to meeting that one person that said, hey, well, you know, you've been taking lower tabs. You've been doing this. But how about trying intervenous? Like, how about shooting it? You feel it. You don't waste it. And I was so spiritually and emotionally broken at that point. I just wanted to do whatever I could not to feel. So it didn't really matter to what length I went. And so I started shooting morphine uh, and Oxycontin. And this was probably around 2009, somewhere in there. And uh, I got indicted. I got set up actually trying to buy some of my drugs. I was playing middleman with a bunch of pills at Toots parking lot here in Murfreesboro. I'm on uh, Rod Street, and um, I caught that charge, and then a couple other charges congruent, and that's when Christ really moved in my life and set me on the path to recovery. Uh, I was forced to go into treatment. I went through the same program three times uh, after the judge allowed me to go, and while I was in there, what was funny is I had Judge Ash, and he looked at me, and he said, I know your father. He said he's a good man. He said, if I see you in here again, you're doing the full two year sentence. So I was like, yes, sir. You won't see me then. I'm going to Florida. So I went down to Florida, got sober. Um, I was sober for a short time. But the problem was out of those three stints prior where I went through rehab, I had met a girl there. She was the reason I went to Florida. Um, I had actually started a relationship with her on that third stint through that rehab and got kicked out as a result. I mean, Maggie, I had to sign a, a paper because when you took away the drugs, there was still something. It was sure. my first drug and that was 
being with someone. I had to have someone to distract me from myself. Mm. Right. And so um, they must have really liked me because they brought me back three times. And then the third time I really let them down and I followed her down to Florida. I stayed clean for about a year in a sober living. And then um, I got her pregnant and they told us, uh, you know, she said she called me one day and she said, look, I have to go home. Uh, my ex-husband has had had an issue and relapsed because he was an addict too. I had to take custody of my six-year-old. And so I transferred from the GNC I was working at in Florida at a year sober. And I went with her uh, up to Georgia. And mind you, at, at this time, Maggie, she had drank multiple times during the pregnancy. I'd caught her. She tried to jump out in my car on the interstate. Um, going about 80 miles an hour, which was really scary. And so I was kind of scared at the situation I was walking into, but moved up to Atlanta, took custody. So I went from being this selfish, self-centered addict that barely knew how to take care of himself to taking care of an entire family. Mm. Um, I was working a full-time job while she stayed home. I'd come home. I would have to clean because nothing would get done during the day, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, it came out that she had been drinking and then shortly thereafter the baby was born after the last threat. Thank God the baby came out. Okay. Yeah. Charlotte, my oldest now. And, um, girl, yes, she is and, and definitely a miracle through all the chaos. But, um, I caught her going to her dealer's house. Um, she was actually on the way to the ATM from our apartment. She told me she was going to the gym and I'm like, yeah, I don't believe you. Yeah. I could tell something was off and I kept finding money coming up, missing the account. And it was always an Amazon package, never made it to the front door was the excuse. So followed her, found out what was going on, tried to keep her sober after I found out she was buying heroin from her dealer. I had never dabbled in heroin before. Lost my job because I was drinking to cope with the stress. I picked that back up, thought I could drink like a gentleman. It progressed. It was funny. It actually started marijuana, alcohol, back to the back to the pills and the opioids. So I just started using with her once I lost my job. And then it was three years of, of chaos. I mean, I remember at the peak of my addiction, back when they had that big snow in Atlanta, what they call a big snow that shut down the interstate probably about, what was it, eight years ago or something like that. Um, I drove a four-wheel drive Acura in eight inches of snow with two kids in the car, eight hours round trip, which it wasn't an eight-hour trip, but cars were shut down. So I was swerving around cars to go to my dealer. Mm. I literally drove with my kids eight hours in the car just to cop heroin and come home. So, you know, I tell people that you may have done some bad things, but that doesn't define who you are. I'm a good father. You know, I know that in my heart. I just made bad decisions, you know, and that, right. that really was the the peak of our addiction. Shortly thereafter, um, we went on our honeymoon. I felt forced to get married because I, I felt like if I didn't, she was going to leave. She told me she would take the kids mm -hmm. uh, multiple times, and it was kind of a manipulation there on her side. So it was just two unhealthy people and I loved her and I still do love her in spite of everything that happened, but it was just a tough situation and she was sick and so was I. But I, after my last overdose, we came home um, <clears throat> from our honeymoon and I believe it was to end of 2013 or 2014. Well, it must've been the beginning, like January, because I went 
to treatment finally in July of 2014 for the last time. But we got into a huge argument on our honeymoon. We had been drinking, you know, we had, we're at a resort and, um, we basically got kicked out of the hotel on our last day, we came home. We were so livid at each other on the plane and she didn't want to feel. So she said, well, look, I want to go get some H and if you don't stop, you know, I'm going to go tell them that, you know, you're doing this and I'm going to take the kids. And so I stopped and got it, but I was so mad that I basically, when I got home, I didn't even say hi to my mother, my poor mother who had been watching my kids the entire week I was gone, went straight past her upstairs, um, drew up half a gram of heroin, which is an awful lot for those that don't know. And then my wife looked at, at the time, looked at me and said, you know, that's going to kill you. And I looked right at her and I said, I don't really care. And I pushed that plunger. And then next thing I know, um, you know, I'm, I'm on the floor. I smacked the, I smacked the granite countertop. I'm on the floor. My, my wife at the time, she's crying in the closet. My mom's beating on the door. Baby's crying. And finally she lets my mom in who gives me CPR until the paramedics get there. And I had a beat per minute for five minutes and they kept hitting me with Narcan. And I woke up in the, the back of the ambulance and talk about the worst feeling. I went into automatic withdrawal. I tried to rip everything off and run out of the ambulance, but that was my, my wake up call. Um, I got actually <laughs> got a little deeper. I got back to the, the, uh, hospital. I was using the same heroin in the bathroom that just killed me mm -hmm. I went back to the house and used the last little bit. And then I, that's when I looked in the mirror and I was like, what are you doing? I just saw this ghost. I was pale had bumps all over my body, my face, I had track marks. And I started thinking about my kids, you know, and, um, you know, I got in the shower, started scrubbing. I felt like I couldn't get clean. Like I was just dirty and I hit my knees and I prayed. I said, God, I'll do whatever it takes. I just, I can't do it my way anymore. I can't do it my parents way. I can't even take my own life. So clearly there's something you want from me and I don't know what it is. And that's when something clicked. I, I, didn't care about what she said. If she didn't want to go to treatment, I was going to go to treatment because I was doing it for me and for my kids. And if she was on board, then she would benefit, but she wasn't. So I went to treatment in 2014. I stayed for not uh, five months in a treatment program, uh, Water's Edge Recovery. And she followed me down to Florida, but she was in and out of halfway houses. She kept hearing rumors that I was, you know, doing this, but I kept hearing rumors that she was talking to other guys and stuff and we're separated at the time, but she kept getting kicked out, you know, staying in touch, trying to find a way to, I think for us to try to reconnect and to get back together and make it work and, um, moved her into my house, which was scary at six months sober for a short time until I could get her placed. Every time I would get her in somewhere, she would get kicked out. She would just go drink. And so for the last, the last time, um, uh, she came over to my house with her boss's car with uh, a bunch of tiny shots in her purse of, of liquor. And I found them and I picked her. I, she got upset with me and said, you're crazy. Like you're like, so what? And I'm like, you're drinking and you're not, it's not safe for me. I got, you got to go. And so she wouldn't leave. I had to physically pick her up and set her outside and take the key from her. And go. after that, I went to a meeting and, I was around people that could love on me because I was really, I was really upset. 
So, you know, fast forward, I started, I stayed at GNC at the time uh, down in South Florida for about a year. And then I decided I wanted to work in treatment. And that's when I went back to become a tech. And that was by far my favorite job. I got to process with the guys in treatment. I'd see them when they come home upset from group therapy and they were at their worst. And I think that's one of the most important jobs in the treatment facility aside from the therapist. Um, but thoroughly enjoyed it. I made a decision after I met my wife. Now uh, we were together for about five or six months, which sounds a little ludicrous to make a rush decision, but we decided to move back home. She wanted to get out of the state. She had always wanted to move to Tennessee. We didn't want to separate. She was at a place in her life where she was willing to take, you know, that chance because she knew she loved me and I loved her. And we packed up and moved home. And I was marketing for another treatment facility in Florida that was reputable. But I just, you know, it was my opportunity. What I see looking back is how God kind of laid the path, right? So I was there for two months, but it got me to Tennessee. It gave me the job that got me home. And then it got me to Journey Pure, which is where I worked for three years. So it's just amazing. Like you don't always understand why things happen. And sometimes it seems like the worst thing ever. You know, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional because I'm thinking about how I've been feeling through COVID too, you know, as an addict. Sure. You look back and you're like, man, that's why that happened. If that didn't happen as hard as it was, I wouldn't be here. That's right. Be where I'm at. And, you know, it brought me to where I'm at today. You know, Tiffany passed away about three and a half years ago, around three years ago from an overdose. Um, she just didn't get it. She was in and out of sober livings. We had her close to going into a um, his teen challenge, actually. And we had her in a detox and she met a guy and left with him. And they stayed in a hotel together and we went through this whole deal trying to talk sense into her, me and her ex-husband, who's also been sober the same length of time I have, which is a miracle because now my stepdaughter has her dad. Hallelujah. And they got a little baby too and a, and a family. So it's just beautiful to watch, but you know, it was heartbreaking to get that phone call yeah. um, because you prepare yourself for it. When you do the job, like it hurts on a certain level when it's somebody, you know, um, that you've worked with, but when it's somebody that you were with or somebody that you were connected to, it just tears you apart. Yeah. It's uh, like every day you're waiting for the phone call. You know, yeah. you know it is, you know, some of the, I, I know from personal experience of a loved one that, you know, as is, is every day, it's like, am I going to get a call from the jail or the morgue? And, and that's a horrible feeling. It is. And, you know, the kids are affected too by it. You know, my daughter, we've had to put her through therapy. We've had to explain to her, but I took her to the funeral. She didn't see her mom. She was there for just the actual proceeding, but yeah. man, to hear, you know, everybody lost it. She saw a picture and she said, there's my mommy and like everybody lost it in there because they know she'll never see her again, you know, and, and I had to sign all these papers and it just stunk. It really did. But the only thing that I could get out of it that I could look at the positive is that she's not hurting anymore because I knew how bad her demons were. We had talked about it. She had eating disorder. She had all this stuff underlying and she was just suffering. She and, you know, the kids also don't have to be watch her struggle and go in and out of her life. 
I'd far rather had her here and get it right. But if it was always going to be that way, I just didn't want her to hurt anymore too. Sure. I, so I think you, I think that's a place you just have to, it's like a place of acceptance. You're, you're forced to think that way or else you're always going to think of what could have been. Right. You know, but it, it's just cool, Maggie, because now what we have, like, I'm in a job that I love. I have a wife that's not in recovery, but that barely drinks, but understands, you know, and then I have another little girl with her. And then we have our, our daughter, Charlotte, from me and Tiffany, which was my first. And what a beautiful family you have. And your bride is stunning. She's so gorgeous. I, you know, I, I just love seeing pictures of y'all because it just makes me smile. It's, um, it's confirmation of, of redemption. You know, yeah. uh, all of the things that were lost, you know, God brought back to center. You have a wife who loves you, beautiful children, and you're working in a field that helps people uh, understand the importance of stop. You know, you, the road is going to get really rough if you don't stop. And, you know, some people, they start using with it. You, you become invincible. You know, that's that's not going to happen to me. You know, and you have this mindset of, you know, well, I would never do heroin. You know, I would never do the needle. But then you always and people always end up to that point if they continue on that cycle. And you got to go back and deal with the root. What is the root? You know, so on one hand, how many times I've heard I've not gotten there yet. I'm not that bad yet. I'd be a millionaire because everyone wants to compare and contrast, but you know, as well as I do, Maggie, it's not about the, the physical, the, it's not about the symptom, which is your use. I don't right. care about all that. What we care about is like what's going on in here Inside. because what's driving the other. So if you're going to compare the outside symptom, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not even acknowledging that there's something deeper going on. Absolutely. So you can't compare it to somebody else because just because they're using heroin and you're drinking alcohol, that doesn't mean you're not trying to avoid the same feelings. It's That's same exactly thing. right. That's exactly right. Wow. I appreciate you going so in depth in the story because, you know, people, you know, they look at people in recovery and they're, and they're, and sometimes they're like, you know, they have no idea what I've been through and you have been through it all. I mean, the whole gamut, you know, to, to loss after loss after loss and also ultimately a loss of a loved one, which, mm -hmm. you know, is, it carries on forever. But whenever you got that revelation, okay, that um, no more, you know, what was your first step? Now, I know that you mentioned that you went to tons of recovery places. How many recovery programs did you try before you got where you're at? Five. Okay. So if you're watching this and you're thinking, I've tried recovery, don't stop. Just again and again and again. I've recently talked to someone who has, has, I think it was six for him. And he's like, well, that just doesn't work because I've tried it six times. And I'm like, then you need to try it seven times because it, it works if you work it. If you continue to, I know I sound like, I, isn't that a quote from like an AA or NA or something? Mm -hmm. it works, work it. But, <laughs> but you have, you can't stop. You can't stop. You have to take action. And I love what you said about the internal and the external, because so many times we measure everything based on the external world. Yeah. And if there's a storm going on inside. And, you know, if your house was on fire, you would grab a hose or something. Right. But inside, yeah. we're just like, you know, a mess. And so for those of you watching, don't give up. Look, you know, what would have happened to Tyler if he would have given up? And I think about the multitude of lives that you have touched in recovery, you know, working in that uh, arena. 
even the people that will listen to this, that will hear that testimony and, and know if he can do it, I can do it. Because, you know, the Bible says that God is no respecter of person. We all have the same 24 hours. You know, people tell me all the time, I don't have time to go to rehab. What, what would you say to the person that says, I don't have time to go to rehab? That none of the other stuff really matters if you're not going to stay alive or out of jail. I mean, the fact of the matter is you're where you're at, whether you're functional or not. You know, I think functional addicts and alcoholics are the hardest ones to treat because they don't have a lot yeah. of the same repercussions. They haven't lost their job. They haven't lost this. But if you realize that your mental and your physical health are deteriorating and if you care about your family, that you need to be healthy and stay alive, then you're willing to acknowledge that first because none of that other stuff, that's all monetary. If you're not healthy, happy and enjoying life, then what else really matters? Right. So you have to. And I tell people this, we don't want to chance you losing your job. There are ways to protect that by coming into treatment. There's FMLA and short-term disability we can sign off of on. We're just so right. quick to make excuses. We're so quick to say, I got to do this, this, and this. And then I see it all the time, Maggie, and so do you. Then they call you back six months later. They've lost their insurance. They lost their job. They've been to jail once on a DUI. And it's like, well, how, I can't help you like I could before when I was trying to push you to go then. And so if I can tell people that, yeah, yeah, you have to, you have to show some willingness, I think. Absolutely. You know, for those of you watching this, if you are struggling, there is help help available. Uh, I encourage you to uh, check out Tulip Hill's website. Uh, there is an 800 number you can call. There are multiple meetings that take place all over. Um, you know, Tyler, can you for a moment talk about the importance of community? Uh, I know you mentioned during COVID, you know, and I know that it is very challenging, um, you know, from a counselor standpoint, I 800% increase rate this year in suicide and, you know, recovery month and suicide awareness. They're, they're both in September. And, you know, I talked to a woman yesterday who is son committed suicide. I'm going to be talking in a couple of weeks to a woman whose daughter committed suicide. And I even talked to a dear close friend, Lisa Hooks, whose mother committed suicide. And so, you know, people look for the, you know, whatever it is to try to cope. And I think with COVID, with the isolation has played a huge role. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah. And I think that a lot of us in the industry kind of projected that this was going to happen. Um, I mean, just to be transparent with you, you know, I don't really hide a, an awful lot. So, and not a lot is private, but if it was affecting me to the point where I, at some point felt like it would just be better to check out, I can only imagine how many other people it affected because at some point, like, I was just scared. I didn't know what my future looked like for my kids. My mental health was suffering. I had to increase the number of times I saw my therapist, the things I'm doing to take care of myself because my mental health was slacking. So that, that to me was enough to know that Lord, it, it was, it had to be bad for other people too. Right. Cause I'm not Absolutely. alone, but they say my sponsor always told me an addict with himself is bad company. We all know that the, op the opposite of addiction is community you need people. We need interaction. We need to get outside of ourselves and just to say hello and to carry on a conversation and go to meetings. Couldn't do any of that. And so I was talking to somebody about it prior to it happening and also my boss. And I said, look, I know that this is tough and it's going to be tough. But like we projected, all the numbers are increasing over here. We weren't seeing people accessing treatment 
That was what was scary, Maggie, is all these numbers were increasing, but we weren't getting phone calls. And we had big companies like Summit, HCA, all these big companies saying, we just, we're down 60%, 50%. We're just staying afloat. And it was us too. And then all of a sudden, when the money ran out in July, um, this unemployment, that's when we started to see everything just skyrocket. Yeah. And so I think that the thing I want people to understand is what COVID created was the perfect scenario for an addict isolation and money and a stream of revenue coming in. And we had to provide money for people in our country because there are people who are struggling. It's just the end result was this was the negative consequence. Yes. Yes. You know, it's interesting how the numbers fluctuate. And I know with, with children out of school, and being at home with substance abuse and and abuse as a whole, uh, you know, so many people were like, "Yay!" You know, we've we've got a decrease in, yeah. in uh, you know people contacting child services. So, yay, something's going right. You know, people are at home with their kids. No, they were locked at home, and there wasn't the school counselors or the teachers or the people seeing the sign or protect them. Exactly. Exactly. So COVID really has affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways, whether you're struggling with addiction or you're in abusive you know, relationships. So if you're watching this, do not stay in a situation that is harmful to yourself or to others or to your children, you know, mm -hmm. over and over again, people. Um, and, and I know you've seen this in the culture of, um, in, in the well, in the drug culture, there is a different level of standards, and there's such a high level of deception of what is okay. And so, what would you say to the person that's watching this, that's going, you know, well, my drug abuse doesn't affect my kids? What would you say to them? What someone told me that got me into treatment um, that I'm not physically present because I'm not emotionally, I'm not feeling. And I'm not connecting when I'm under the influence, whether or not I'm at home and the kids are fit. And this is what Mickey told me. He's my best, one of my best friends. Um, we were in each other's wedding. He's the guy that got me into treatment, but he told me that he said, dude, he said, you're shooting up in your bathroom, but you're putting on like, everything's okay. The house is clean. The bills are paid, but are you really there? And I, <laughs> I got a flash in my head when he said that of me playing PlayStation and my kids sitting in the background playing. I'm like, no, I wasn't connecting at all. I was just detached. So if I can give that example and let people know that it's it's about the relationship with your kid. It's not about what you're doing on the exterior and what you're doing for your kids. No. I think that that would get them to understand it's deeper. That's good. That's really good. You know, you talked about um, safeguarding yourself in times of stressors and trouble, you know, COVID and so forth and increasing. That's what's so important for you all that are watching this broadcast. You know, you may be like, I have been, you know, I, I, I'm fine. I, you know, I, I haven't had needed to go to a meeting or meet with a therapist or, you know, meet with a, a, a sponsor or anyone because I'm good. I encourage you and challenge you to be real with yourself. Well, you know what fine means. I'll yeah, edit. Come on. Effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> Say it again for somebody that needs to hear that. Effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much kind of, you know, I you know, and it's thrown around so loosely. It's like, I'm fine, I've got this, it's okay. And and we create this false sense of security, right? Where people think that, you know, well, 
Well, they said they were okay. Are they really? And I think that uh, accountability is a huge role. And you mentioned uh, your friend Mickey and his role early on in your treatment. And now that you're great friends and so forth, what would you say to the people that are saying, why does somebody need to know all my business? <laughs> because it's a full-time job trying to keep it hidden. And eventually it wears on you and it destroys the moral fiber of everything inside of you. And then at some point, you feel like your life doesn't matter. And so I guess that you have to be honest with yourself enough to realize that you're not okay. And by telling someone else, it brings this weight off your shoulders. I'm not telling you just to go around. They, I heard something in scripture that telling your story too early can do the opposite of what it needs to do. Um, I think that it's not so much about disclosing, it's about talking to the right person and asking, them for suggestions for help. Um, I needed somebody to give me a hug when I went to treatment and tell me it's going to be okay. I needed a group of guys that I could look up to that were living right and say, you know what, that I want to be like them because I, the people I've been looking up to at that point, <laughs> they weren't good people. What would you say about forced treatment? You know, people say all the time, well, you know, you can't make someone get help. But, you know, you'd mentioned that the legal system is what forced you into treatment. Mm -hmm. Forced treatment is still treatment. But what would you say to that person that says that, well, my son or my daughter. If I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. I hear that a lot. And I get it. I mean, treatment's not cheap, especially if you don't have insurance. But. I would tell them that all it takes is a sliver of a moment in a therapy session with a counselor for something to click that most people don't want to go into treatment. Most people that are willing are just so broken and don't have any other option that they're forced anyways. And so I guess my point is by setting boundaries and not giving them a place to lay their head, not giving them money to go get high on and telling them this is the only thing you'll do for them. And doing that, even if it is forced, it's starting the process of recovery, because once I went to treatment that first time when I relapsed, it messed up my whole using experience and it essentially brought me right back into treatment. Absolutely. That's really good advice. Really good advice, because, you know, I think I've, I've mentioned to you and I know I've mentioned from a platform before that codependency is that, you know, I was a worse codependent than I was an addict, you know, mm -hmm. because I had to stop my addiction behaviors due to other circumstances and my children and so forth. But, but when I became a codependent, when I recognized, you know, because I got clean before my ex-husband. And so I started being out of control. So if you are a parent or a loved one that is enabling and if you're asking, Asking yourself, what is that really? Tyler, talk to them about that because I know that you had to go through that to a certain extent, you know, because you, you got yourself clean, but yet you were still dealing with a spouse that was ready to wreck y'all's life. Talk to the, to the person that maybe has gotten clean, but they're still living or in relationship with someone who's not. Well, look, I mean, I'm a parent now. I got two little girls and I can't fathom the concept of saying you can't stay here and worrying if they were going to be in a ditch somewhere the next day. Yeah. But, but what's the other alternative? You come home and they're overdosed on your couch and you did nothing. So it's better to force that. And, and I can tell you this too, in my experience in doing this for almost five years, they don't make it very long before they pick up that phone and call. 
we're not very resilient working a full-time job trying to make money when we have none and get high so when you force them and you cut that revenue that stream off or you don't give them a nice comfy bed to lay down in every night after they go get high it really messes them up it messes us up and then eventually we're like you know what i don't think i want to couch surf or i burned every bridge i've had um i'd rather do this the right way and go to treatment so you actually are forcing their hand and making them realize like this isn't going to work anymore and that's what had to happen for me my parents had to look at me and say look we we're not paying for anything to help you we're not bailing you out anything you can't stay here because i can't even trust you not to take money your only option is treatment that's what had to happen for me that's good i think i walked out of the house mad for like maybe 10 hours went to a friend's house got messed up and then i was like yeah this ain't gonna work <laughs> yeah i um i had someone recently say this um this whole tough love thing is not working for me <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know the reality is is that you know um, everybody's recovery road is different. And, you know, some people, you know, they can you go to meetings that, you know, the majority of people, it does them well to go to detox and then go into a treatment facility where they can start to get some ground because, you know, it's like when we have children, you know, we don't take our babies and set them in the road and go, Hey, hope you make it. You know, <laughs> uh, no, we, they need to be in a safe, protected environment. And that's what happens y'all whenever you go into treatment. And so it's a, it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it, comes down the point that it comes down to is is looking in the mirror and saying I don't want to live like this anymore and the reason that people use at least the reason I use is because I didn't want to feel the way I felt and I was hiding and I wanted to cover up and all of those things so whatever you are struggling with know that there's help well and to the reoccurring person through treatment um, like myself if you have that reservation that I know everything there is to know about treatment. I don't need to go back. I hear that all the time too. That's your addiction working, not wanting to let go and to relinquish control. The fact of the matter is you need time and separation from the drug to work on your triggers. And obviously if it had worked the first four, five, six, eight times, and you had disclosed everything to your therapist and worked through a lot of your adverse childhood experiences and trauma, you wouldn't be using again. So, okay you don't have all the answers go find them that is so very very true i work with people all the time you know when we're talking about aces they're they're real you know i had a boatload of them i think you know my first time i went through training on aces i looked at and i was like no wonder i'm so screwed up you know i like 17 so i'm like a crazy number and i'm going oh this makes total sense so yes and i get that a lot where people uh each time you know i, I refer to it like a, an onion if you cut an onion open it's got all of these different layers and some are really thick and some are a little thin. You know, maybe the thin one was you was bullied as a kid, but that really thick one was maybe you were molested or whatever the case may be. And so until you deal with the root issues, you know, you've got to be, you know, transparent and real. Well, like you said, there's going to be something or someone you encounter that reminds you of that memory or that interaction or something. And it may not even be relative or what it actually is. It's what your mind perceives. And it's like an open wound. It happened to me all the time in relationships because I had been through some stuff. I had some trust issues. So anytime something that reminded me of that scenario would pop up, Tyler's insecurity would come up and I would be this jealous type person. It's just like a knife in an open wound. So when it comes to sexual trauma, same thing. 
It's hard to connect with a partner that may be right for you because you're afraid you're always going to get. So you have to work through that stuff. If you don't, there's always going to be there and you're just a dry drunk or alcoholic or addict at that point. You're just that's, trying to function. That's exactly right. For those that, does, that don't understand that term, elaborate a little bit more, if you will. Uh, meaning you just remove the substance, but you're not fixing the core issue. That's right. And the core issue is the heart of the issue. You know, the Bible says that, you know, man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. You're not hiding anything from God. God knows all the traumas. He knows all the pains. He knows everything, you know, about you. He knew, knew you before the foundation of the earth. He knows how many hairs is on your head. You know, his thoughts about you are like as timeless as the sand on the beach. That is amazing to me uh, that there is a creator that loves us so much. But yet in this place that we call world, the world, you know, with all the sin sickness, I mean, we just get sick. And, you know, the, the traumas, the, you know, all the things and people when they experience trauma and they start looking through the lens, you know, I know for many years because I had abandonment, abandonment issues. And I looked through the lens of rejection. Everything was rejection, you know? And so that's an area that I have to be really careful. So about. you find it really easy to play the victim? Well, no, I never played never. the victim card too much. Okay. But it was in secret. You know, I was never really real about it until after I started getting help. You know, and, and I'll tell you, I am 56 years old. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm 56 for you ladies that hide your age. Just be real. OK, you know, it's going to happen. You can't stop it. But I will tell you, and I did not really start seeking any type of professional help until my 30s. And so even now at 56, there are areas in my life where I'm constantly like going, oh, gosh, you know, why did I think that? Or where does that come from? And it's a constant thing. We don't arrive. OK, we don't arrive. You know, we're on this uh, this uh, constantly being transformed. Now, you, I walk in my authority of who Christ created me to be. And the closer I become to him, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, here you are right here. All right. You know, here's your spouse. The closer you become to God, the closer you become in your relationships. So but you know what has helped me, Tyler, is mm -hmm. accountability. Yeah accountability, because I know that someone that I know and trust is going to ask me the hard questions. What are you thinking about? But to get there, you have to be able to ask yourself the truth. That's right. Because you have to be able to take a look at yourself and say, did I react wrong in this scenario and bounce it off of somebody that you trust, not somebody that gives biased opinions or is going to be a yes man a true friend or a therapist, somebody that's going to tell you the honest truth. And then at that point you can begin the process, right? So true. That is so true. Having good support system is vital. It is vital. You know, you find those people that are in your corner that, that you, that will tell you the truth because yes. I know I had a lot of people. It's like, Oh, it's okay. You know, you work hard and you know, you're, you're a good mom and all this stuff. And I didn't need to hear that crap. I needed somebody to say to me, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, or to say, you know, that was a bad decision. You did, you did the wrong thing, but that doesn't make you a bad person. Like, because naturally, like, if you're like me, is I, I can go down this path of I'm not a good person. I'm a piece of crap. I'm never, and it's like this toxic shame that that manifests itself. So you got to practice your tools. You got to be able to say, look, I'm not defined by the bad decisions I made or that one bad interaction. I messed up and that's okay. Cause I'm human. Humans make mistakes. We're not Christ. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be self-aware and we have to ask for forgiveness or try to make amends. 
That's exactly right. And that is what's so powerful about people working the steps is because when you get to that point where you start to make amends, there's a whole level of healing that mm -hmm. comes with that. So it's so important. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This has been so good. I know we've gone way over the time. Yeah. I, I, you know, but I enjoyed this so much because I, you know, we still got people watching and I know people will be watching this on the replay. So Tyler, if you could leave them with one key, what would that key be? Whether it's a, a word of encouragement, a quote or anything, what would that key be? And we've talked, we've given them tons of keys, a whole brain full of keys. So what would you say to that person? Um, or if someone is an active addiction, what would you say to them? Be humble, be willing, be forgiving yourself and find the beauty in life because in a world right now where there's a lot of, a lot of ugliness, you got to look for the beauty and there is a lot of it out there. Wow. That's beautiful. That needs to be on a t-shirt. <laughs> be humble. But what, what was it again? Oh Lord. I don't even know. That wasn't from me. Watch <laughs> <laughs> so replay it and then put it on a t-shirt. Yeah, on the replay, you need to do that. And the hashtag recovery happens. Or hashtag recovery. I love that. I love that. Because listen, you know, um, there's a song that says, you know, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. So whether or not um, you are at that point where you feel like your life is dust or whether you're at that point where you can't see the beauty, it's there. It's there. You know, take the blinders off. You know, I remember the first time that I actually drove through a, down a country road, seen flowers and was like moved by it, you know, and and because before it was just like I had no I had no uh, measurement of what is beauty. And, you know, we're living in a fallen world with a whole lot of people that are hurting. So go look for the beauty. And I'm sorry. Hey, slow down a little bit. Look yeah. at those things. I have to remind myself I'm always in a hurry. <laughs> uh, hence why I'm I'm locked up in a cabin. You're talking to the queen. Hurry. Yeah. But busy is not always productive. No. And a lot of times we get caught up. We in could busy. do a whole another hour on that one. Yes, we could. We'll have to do this again. This has been so great, Tyler. Awesome. So for those of you watching this on the replay or watching it live, uh, we just encourage you make today count. Okay. Everybody's got 24 hours. Today's the day of recovery. You choose. Uh, like Tyler said, you're not defined by your past. So let the Lord work in your life. Go get the help you need. Reach out and make a difference. God bless you guys. We'll see you on the next broadcast. God bless.